the question about where we fit in is a question that ultimately asks, where do we connect? And I think that to a very, very large degree, awareness, the basic facility of being aware that we're aware is taken for granted. And yet, if we want to just for a moment lapse philosophical about it, the only way we can know the world is through this facility of awareness. Welcome to Create New Features, a show about thought-provoking ideas and practices you can use to create and shape your future in life and in business. Join Aviv Shahar, author and innovation strategy consultant, as he shares his proven strategies that have helped clients create breakthrough results. Aviv has guided executives at Fortune 100 companies, and now he wants to help you. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders who pioneer and create new futures for themselves and for their organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Tim Coates. I have collaborated with Tim when he was a senior executive at General Mills. After he retired, Tim started publishing a blog at team-coats.com that he calls Towards a Life Well-Lived, Reflections on the Art of Increasing Joy, Meaning, and Belonging in Daily Living. Today, we want to delve deep and explore his thoughts and reflections. Tim, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you very much, Aviv. It's great to be here. So since this is going to be the focus of our inquiry, let me begin with a simple question. What fills you with energy and joy these days? Well, when I first retired eight years ago, I was very worried about how my day would be filled. I mean, because when we're in our workaday life, we go from one thing to another, and we're lucky if we find time to eat or take care of personal needs. And all of a sudden, when one retires, there's the opportunity to rethink their life and to think about what's really important. And as I did that, I found that what's most important in life is connection and how we connect with life. Because after all, life isn't about us, we're about life. And so what I've been doing really uh, since my retirement is connecting more deeply with others, connecting more deeply with nature, and uh, indeed connecting more deeply with uh, how I think or how I feel about spirit. Mm. So we want to uh, go deep on this idea of connecting more deeply to get us into the, the space, you and I initially met when you were leading a large team at the company you're working in. And I don't know if you will agree with my characterization, but would it be fair in retrospect to say that you were a closet philosopher and a mystic flying under the cover of a corporate executive for many years? And that then after you retired, you allowed the mystic and the philosopher to come out? Yes, I'm, I'm afraid that would be an accurate description. Although those who, are, who do not read the mystics hear the word mystic and conjure up something that uh, is quite strange when I think of a mystic as someone who pursues union with life. And uh, that's what I've always pursued. Uh, when I was 
six years old. I must have been a very strange little kid because I remember vividly at age six, I was playing in the front lawn with my buddies. And all of a sudden it struck me, I am me. And, you know, I kept rolling that over and over in my brain saying, I am me. What does that mean? And what is to come of me? Because, you know, I grew up in a loving family and and with um, very loving parents. I thought, you know, one day they will not be here and I will still be me. And, And how am I to move forward on that? And the thing that was strange about that is that thought never left. I rolled it around and around in my brain through my early childhood and into adolescence. And here, it, uh, as I approach my eighth decade of life, I find myself uh, still rolling it around in my mind in terms of what does it mean to be alive and how do we live that to the fullest? Well, so let's, let's go with the flow of the story. So this self-insight, self-awareness appears with you when at the age of six. And what happens then? How is this inquiry evolving through your teenage years? Well, I think it made me a bit serious. I remember when I was in fifth or sixth grade walking up the stairs to our classroom and thinking to myself, Tim, you just have to lighten up. I mean, be more like the other kids. Don't be so serious because I find myself I guess I am a philosopher. And even today, I have to be careful with my friends to not launch into some. We were talking about, we have a group we call the Eclectic Society, where once a month we meet to discuss various topics. And a while back, our topic was truth. And so, you know, leave it to me. I start bringing out Plato, you know, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And uh, my friends are going, oh, here comes a philosopher again. So one has to be careful not to overstep their bounds in this realm, I think. So pursuing the story and the choices of living, how do you get into a professional corporate career and allow these philosophical pursuits to to play in the background. Take me through some of the decisions in the early formative stages of your life. Well, that's an excellent question. I, you know, I'd like to pause and think about it, but what comes immediate to mind as I think about an answer to that question is the lessons I needed most in life, I wanted least. And I think that is probably a good introduction to that answer because, you know, I'm a type A person. I don't know if people know what type A people are anymore, but it's someone who is highly driven. I'm used to setting a goal and accomplishing that goal. I think when I was six years old, too young to push a lawnmower, I was crocheting potholders and selling them up and down the street to make money. And by the time I was nine, I convinced my dad to let me borrow the lawnmower and cut people's grass. Can you imagine that now? A nine-year-old beating on your door, some kid that's tall. Hello, mister, can I cut your lawn? But anyway, whether it was school, whether it was sport, whether it was a business, I've always had this mindset that you can accomplish anything you put your mind to. And it wasn't until some things happened in my life that where I learned that you can't control all the circumstances in your life. In fact, some of the most important circumstances of your life, you can't control. And so that leaves one with the challenge of, well, how is it that I'm going to live a joyful life when 
you know, any number of things happened. I've lost my parents. I've lost my spouse. I've lost a child. My business has gone under. I mean, how do we find joy amidst these circumstances that are beyond our control? And I started to become more and more interested in that so that I think that my stint in business was almost a learning lab where I had the opportunity of how do I connect with others in a way that helps them bring themselves to work so that in effect, they're working for themselves and not for me. And as I did that, you know, I kind of watched what happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's part philosopher in me and part, uh, we need to get the result here in me. So in the professional career became a theater of A, achieving certain worldly goals that you set out for yourself and B, a lab, a learning lab about yourself, about the world and about how to get results in this world and also preserve an, an inner dialogue about the meaning of it all. I think so. And, and the thing that fascinates me most about the world and that I, I do blog about is I think the most amazing word, one of the most amazing words in the English language is we. And if one is to think about, well, what does that mean? And they might say, well, I mean, that's a silly question. We is perhaps myself and you, Aviv, and it's you and one or more other people, and that's a we. And actually, that's not indeed correct. A we consists of certainly myself and another person, but there's a third entity involved in a we. It's the relationship. And my daughter got married up here. I'm in Northwest Wisconsin now at our lake home. And my daughter wanted to get married at our lake home. And she asked me if I would uh, perform the service. And I, you know, I was very honored to do that. But at the same time, you think, you know, what in the world am I going to say that's short but meaningful to my daughter and her new husband at this service? And what I decided upon was that uh, today there's three people at this stand, not two. And there's Julia, my daughter, her new soon-to-be husband, Ryan, and there's their love. And uh, what we're really here about is to celebrate the start of the three of these entities building their life together. And um, I posted on my blog um, maybe 18 years ago, when does the addition of one creates the addition of nine? And because when a child appears, if you do the, the math, you have a relationship with each of the three and you have a relationship with each one in the presence of the other. You do the math, you add the compound of nine different relationships. All that is to do with recognizing the complexity and and the, the multiplicity of combinations when a family come together. So fascinating. So let me ask you, but specifically about the blog, what was the inquiry that you initially set out to answer and how did you go about blogging on a weekly basis? Well, it's a very interesting and and personal question. I've been keeping a personal journal more of to keep thought of my, you know, keep track of my thoughts and to record important things that I've read, you know, for 30 years and the journals, you know, well over a thousand handwritten pages and I love to write and, but I never shared my writing with anyone because I felt this is my personal journal and I, I didn't even share it with my wife. 
and it was mine. And several years back, I play guitar and I was playing guitar up at the lake here with a buddy of mine. And he was very, very talented. And I said, Doug, you really need to start writing songs. And he said, I can't. I go, what do you mean you can't? And he said, well, I tried, but I can't. I just, it just doesn't come out. I said, that's ridiculous. Said, I want you from now on to write one song a week. And if it's not any good, don't play it for people. And if it's good, play it for people. Well, long story short, he recorded two CDs. And not too long after that point in time, he never played any covers anymore. He just played original music. And so shortly before he passed away, I was at his house for dinner. And he said, Tim, how's your writing going? I said, terrible. He goes, what do you mean terrible? I said, well, you know, I read quite a bit and I can recognize good writing from bad writing. And I would classify mine amongst the latter. And he said, well, who have you shared it with? I said, well, no one. And he goes, ah, you're better at giving advice than you are taking it yourself. (laughs) So I said, you know, after he passed away of, of a cancer and that just rolled around and around in my mind, I thought, wow. You know, I haven't shared it with with anyone. So right in the middle of uh, the pandemic, I said, you know what? I'm going to publish a blog and figure out how to launch a website and all that happy stuff. And it's going to be about how we find joy in life. Because you know what? People like me try to shape their lives to create happiness. And at best, it's only partially successful because I think the difference between joy and happiness is happiness is circumstantial and joy transcends circumstance. So my buddy, Doug, kind of goaded me into uh, writing a blog and it went from a few people to, I guess, a few hundred now. So it's become kind of my avocation. How do you define what is a life well lived since this is the central inquiry of the blog? Right. Well, I think in a word, it's joy, but it's, it's a little deeper than that. I think I said, I spent a long time trying to think about what was my purpose as I started this so I could focus my writing. And after quite a while, I thought, you know, my purpose for the balance of my life is to enjoy a meaningful life. Now, on the surface, that sounds hedonistic. I mean, you think, what do you mean? Your, your life's just about fun. No, I said meaningful. And meaning to me involves connection because without connection, we lose meaning. And so if one can both be connected and grow those connections and also experience joy that transcends circumstance, that's a pretty strong shout. And so the older I get in life, Aviva, I notice that people kind of fall into two broad categories. And I'm fascinated by these categories. The first category is people who are happy no matter what. And the second category, and you may have guessed it, is people who are unhappy no matter what. And I watch these people, and some of them are dear friends. Some of them are family members. And I wondered what defines these two groups of people. And in the end, I think it has to do with spirit. And I define spirit not so much in a religious context, although it doesn't exclude religious context, but spirit is that in-betweenness. Mm. You know, the spirit 
is, you know, there's you and there's I, and there's something in between us that we both see. You will never know the we that is you and I from my angle. I will never know the we that is you and I from your angle. But there's something there. It's very powerful. And I notice that people who are joyful, despite tragic life circumstances, have a lot of spirit or a lot of we in their life. And those who are not joyful, and in fact, the opposite, have a poverty of that we in their life. You also say that meaning is about finding one's place in the world and seeing where one fits in the bigger picture in a way that, that makes sense. How do you mean that? And is the invitation there that we can develop it, that we can have a choice about it? Is it intuitive? How do you, from your own observation of, of life and of people, how do we find meaning? Is this something we go about searching and, and it finds us? What is the journey of finding meaning? There's two ways I'd like to answer that question. The first is the question about where we fit in is a question that ultimately asks, where do we connect? And I think that to a very, very large degree, awareness, the basic facility of being aware that we're aware is taken for granted. And yet, if we want to just for a moment lapse philosophical about it, the only way we can know the world is through this facility of awareness. And yet we take it for granted. And so when we feel unconnected, when we feel that maybe life is meaningless, I think that's a symptom of lacking connections. And it's a symptom of underdeveloped awareness. And as we develop awareness, whether it's through a sitting practice or whether it's through communing with nature or whether it's through just catching yourself in the moment, the more we develop that awareness, the more we develop that presence, the more connections begin to emerge. And suddenly life isn't about me. It becomes increasingly about we. And so I think to answer your question, how we find meaning is basically a question of how do we expand awareness? Mm. And in my own personal journey, you know, I love to read philosophy. I love to read religion. I had hundreds of books, you know, on my bookshelf that I read over a 30 year period. And I was convinced that if, you know, kind of the smorgasbord, take a little bit here, take a little bit there, take a little bit here, because I don't observe one particular religion myself, but I like to draw on all of them as need be. And I thought I would eventually develop an algorithm, <laughs> develop a, a rubric, maybe is a better word, for where the meaning was in my life. And one day, and I can't remember, I, I would love to find this quote again, if any of your uh, uh, listeners know it, but it was Aldous Huxley. I was reading his book and he said, the path to the imminent, in the context here, he was talking about meaning, the path to the imminent by way of intellect is impassable. And I thought, oh my, <laughs> because I'd spent, what, 25 years and hundreds of books and bookshelves full of stuff trying to find that path. And here's this person who's writing, I respect it, saying, 
you know, the path uh, by way of intellect is impassable. This was about, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And from there, I decided, well, that fits my bias because I've spent 25 years and haven't found that. And so I stopped or detoured the path I was on and began a very serious contemplative practice. And that turned out to be where meaning resides. It resides in here and how the in here connects with the out there, for me anyway. So what is part of your contemplative practice? Yeah, that's a great question. It's been evolving. So I have had a sitting practice for, I don't know, 15 years or so where I'll I don't know what the names of this are. I'm self-taught, but I'll sit in, in just awareness without thought and just um, just be, you know. Um, so whether you call that mindfulness or some kind of you know meditation, I don't know what the name of it is for. And then the second thing I try to do is I try to catch myself in the act of not being present. I uh, get irritated quickly by long grocery checkout lines and long post office lines and people who insist on driving in the left-hand lane at 10 miles an hour below the speed limit, you know, stuff like that, stupid little things. And yet they set me off. And I try to, when those things happen, catch myself and say, who is angry right now? Or who is frustrated right now? And how does it feel to be frustrated? And why are you frustrated? And when you begin that kind of inquiry, suddenly, and, and it's through no effort, suddenly you drop back into presence. And it's my experience that when a person's truly present, wisdom just <laughs> manifests. You know, wisdom may be something that, you know, I like to pursue wisdom. Well, you can't pursue wisdom. I think wisdom manifests when we become really present to life. So that's the second way. The third way that I practice regularly is I kind of coined the term disciplines of seeing. So what I do, I love photography. Every time a Canon releases a new professional camera, I'm usually guilty of, of purchasing it. And I watch light. And if light strikes something in an unusual way, you know, I'll take a photograph. And in the process, I try to notice something each week that wasn't there the week before. And I have a beautiful place to do that here in the North Woods of, you know, Wisconsin. But, you know, maybe there was a flower that wasn't here last week, or maybe there's a little toad in the yard that wasn't here last week. And when you force yourself to slow down, to be present, and to look at light, all of a sudden, and I wasn't trying to think this, one discovers that, wow, everything's interconnected. And, you know, maybe I'm interconnected part as well. And, and so I call that a discipline of seeing. So those three things are um, what I practice from a least a contemplative uh, um, perspective. And when you talk about living a connected life, sensing into presence and connection, these are practices that lead you there, or do you mean more in this idea of? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that what I would say is what's most important is balance. And the traditional mode of balance is body, mind, spirit. That's been written about for 
millennia. And, but I, I really do try to practice that. You know, I was a distance runner for 25 years. And when my knees gave out, I, I was a competitive cyclist. And now, as I've mentioned before, as I approach my eighth decade, I try to get uh, 10,000 steps in a day. It's, uh, and once in a while, I go for a long bike ride. But um, so, I, so I think, you know, that's very, very important because, you know, sometimes you don't want to get on the bike and ride 50 miles. But if you can't discipline your body, you have little hope of disciplining your mind. And so the body is the easiest part of those three to discipline. And so you work on the body. I work on the mind. I try to read inspirational things daily. And then working on spirit, I think, is a process of working actively on the we in life. And I, I guess I'm guilty of interchanging the words we and spirit because I think we is filled with spirit. You write on your blog that there are four basic principles that you observe to be involved in, in the creation of a life well lived. Balance, awareness, practice, and wisdom. You've already talked to, to all of these. So let's take them one more time, one by one, and anchor me, please, in your core idea, core thinking. First about balance, which you talk to now in the idea of bringing life energies into balance, what else would you say to a young person who would ask you, how can I live a more balanced life? What, what would be the guidance that you offer? That's really a, an important question. You know, life is energy and physicists would say this. And, and when that energy is not in balance, we experience dis-ease disease. And we can tell when we're not in balanced we're not balanced when we're stressed or we're quick to anger or sometimes even when we get sick we're we're not balanced and so i think balance you know is critically important and it's the uh, body mind spirit and the thing that uh, frustrates me and and it's a difficult thing to approach is that when you invoke the word spirit people immediately think religion and increasingly, especially young people, I think there was a recent Pew survey that said something around 40% of young people do not observe religion in a formal way. And if someone connects to spirit, the religion, that's wonderful, but that's not what I'm talking about. When I speak to religion, I'm speaking to that in-betweenness that in-betweenness is between you and a friend, you and a lover, you and nature, you and your God. It's in-betweenness. And so when we're balancing spirit, what we're balancing, what we're saying is, this isn't all about me. It's about us and us with a big U. And it's learning to see and participate in the grand big E ecology of life. That's what spirit's about. And so when I say balancing mind, body, and spirit, it's, you know, get your get yourself in shape. It doesn't mean you're not a little overweight. I've always been a little overweight. My running friends called me the Clydesdale. <laughs> but uh, but it's it's learning to, you know, discipline your body and discipline your mind and open up your being to the spirit that is all around us. So that's the balance part. What was the, uh, the second one was? Well, you're already in what you describe now, in the way you describe spirit, you already talk about awareness and about practice is the two pathways that you must integrate 
to the idea of, of balance because if you are to be balanced then you've got to practice awareness about it and about what you call the in-betweenness. The fourth element is wisdom. How do you again grant wisdom in this idea of the four basic principles of a life well lived? Would you mind if I went back for a second to awareness? Please. Because you and I, I think, resonate with awareness. I mean, I knowing a little bit about you, Aviv, I know that uh, when I speak of awareness, it's not something that you find to be foreign. But amongst some of my more scientific friends and uh, the strict materialists, you know, awareness, you know, what are you talking about, Tim, awareness? Of course, we're aware. I mean, there's a large group of people, maybe a majority of people that think the discussion of awareness is either pedantic or just a waste of time, because after all, that's what we are. And one of the key themes of my blog is awareness, while it's innate, it's very much a cultivatable skill. And it's a skill we can spend our life cultivating. And so, first of all, that's kind of the awareness piece. Now, to get back to how you find wisdom, I think wisdom finds us when we're aware. Because after all, somehow, and according to scientists, and I have no reason to believe this isn't true, but, you know, we're constructed of atoms that were birthed in nuclear fusion and stars, you know, <laughs> way far away. And suddenly, you know, billions of years later, we're here. So, I mean, there's things going on that we have no idea about. And there's a wisdom in reality that we cannot know. But what I've found is that when I make myself present or when I practice presence, maybe is a better way to describe that, that wisdom, wisdom just kind of bubbles up in a, like an artesian force. And to be clear, I mean, like, there's a huge difference between knowledge and wisdom. Sometimes I hear people use them interchangeably, but knowledge is something we get when we read a lot and take a lot of notes and take tests and all that stuff. Wisdom is insight with respect to connections. Wisdom is insight with respect to connection. Yeah, wisdom is all about connections. Jimi Hendrix supposedly said, knowledge speaks, but wisdom listens. And I think when you're present, that's what you're doing. You're listening and wisdom emerges from that listening. The other element you focus on in your blog is belonging. What is belonging? Another good question. I should have anticipated all these questions of you <laughs> since they're about the blog, but I think meaning is us trying to fit in. Where do I fit in? Belonging is where others want us to fit in. So it's almost looking through both ends of the telescope. Meaning is me searching out and going, where do I fit? And belonging is when I feel and when I can see others want me to be a part of them. And we haven't talked about this, and I don't think, I, but I mentioned it kind of early on in my blog, but I think there's five energies in life. And the first energy is ego. And we all experience this. I mean, when a tremendously egotistical, maybe a pathological, egotistical person enters a room, they suck every ounce of energy out of everyone else towards them. That's the first energy. 
The second energy, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi wrote a book called Flow. And the second energy is when you immerse yourself in an activity, it might be painting a picture or playing an instrument or whatever it may be, but you're so immersed, you lose track of time, you lose track of presence, hours pass by because you're in flow. The third energy is resonance. And the best way to describe resonance is next to my piano sits my acoustic guitar. And if I hit the E note on the piano very hard and put my ear next to my guitar, my E string is vibrating. So something happened here that caused something to happen here. And when we become present, really, it's just a facility of opening ourselves to resonant energy, resonant energy. The fourth is radiance. I once knew for a brief period of time, I attended a church in our neighborhood, and there was this minister um, named Gordon, and he was one of the few charismatic people, and I mean seriously charismatic people I've ever met in my life. He was so charismatic that if he walked into the room, I felt better, even if he didn't look at me. He just had this, and, and I studied him and studied him and took notes about him going, why is this person so charismatic? And the only thing I could come to was he had radiant energy. It was the opposite of the egotistical person who sucks the energy out of the room. He gave energy to the room so ubiquitous, ubiquitously that you felt it, even though he wasn't you know, focused specifically on you. The last one is the most subtle, the hardest to understand, and I don't really pretend to understand this energy, but I have no doubt that it exists. It's manifestation. And, you know, when we are fully participating in a resonant and radiant way, synchronicities occur that are just kind of hard to explain by chance. And, you know, this has happened so many times in my life. I can go back in my journal and see it. That I'm kind of going, you know, that spooky thing that happened just can't be coincidence because it happens all the time. And I think what it might be, although there's no way to know really, is that when we are deeply attempting to connect with the world, we send out a radiant energy that has implications. And sometimes those implications bounce back at us. And we experience those as a synchronicity, when in fact, it's the give and the take of energy with the world. So that might sound a little woo, (laughs) but I think there's something there. You're describing that when you are engaged and connected with the resonant and the radiant aspect of life, to think something is to cause it to be, to feel something is to bring it into the manifest realm because you are joined to something bigger and greater than yourself. And that sense of tetheredness inside that greater source becomes therefore a cosmology of possibility where you are no longer thinking your own thoughts, just feeling your own feelings. You become that conduit of manifestation. Well put. It's, maybe it's Richard Feynman's, the uh, great you know, a teacher, physicist, you know, the multiple you know, multiple realities. I mean, a couple examples that that just blew me away. I was in New Zealand and uh, my daughter was doing a a semester away in New Zealand. And 
whenever I'm in a town, I, I immediately find, you know, the bookstore that has the old dusty shelves. And in Dunedin, New Zealand had one of these, and uh, there was rooms and rooms and rooms, uh, you know, books piled to the ceiling. And I walked into this bookstore and like going through a corn maze without pausing, I went through this maze of rooms, reached up at the end of the one room, almost out of reach, pulled out a book. And it was the exact subject that I had been doing philosophical research on and trying to understand. And I'm going, man, that's strange. And another time in uh, Moab, Colorado, I was in another bookstore. And I'd been, this was before Amazon when rare books were hard to find. And lo and behold, this book I'd been looking for for a couple of years was there, you know, on the, on the bookshelf. So I pulled it off and walked up to the checkout counter to pay for it. And the woman at the checkout counter said, oh, this is a very good book. Maybe someday you'll write a book like this, you know, so it, which is right what I was in the process of doing. So I'm kind of going, oh, that's strange. I mean, what kind of vibe did I give off that would make her and in the book was a rather esoteric book, you know. So anyway, so I mean, these things happen, and I think we all experience them, and usually we blow them off as artifacts of chance. But I think there's less chance in them than we may appreciate. Circling back to this idea of belonging, you also say that belonging is to be accepted and valued just the way we are, and it's a striking definition because so many people try to be something other than who they are, and perhaps some of the suffering and struggle and, and strife that accompanies life is in through this idea or through this experience of, A, not being accepted, but first not accepting yourself. What would you say to that from your observation and experience? Oh, it's so true. I mean, do you remember the very first time you ever asked, you know, someone out on a date? I remember the first time I did, and, you know, it was back in the day of dial phones because I'm old enough to have lived in that day and your hands kind of shaking as if you, you know, as you, as you dial the number and, you know, she answers and you're kind of going, you know, you're, <laughs> you know, and where's the fear coming from? Well, of course the fear is, well, what if she says no? And well, you know, now we'd say, well, she said no, but then we said, well, then I would be shattered, you know, because, I've mustered all this courage to do this thing. And now I've been rejected or, you know, when I first started sharing my writing, you know, I didn't want to share because I didn't think it was any good. And now, you know, it's offered such a way to connect with so many friends. I haven't seen 10, 15 years. And whenever I run across a friend, I'm saying, Hey, I read your blog every week. In fact, you know, I get my coffee. And the first thing I do on Sunday morning is I open your blog and I'm kind of going, wow, that's cool. And so I went from, you know, being afraid to even share it with someone to having people I care about that being an important part of their week. And so, you know, we're afraid to put ourselves out there. And, and it's a shame because at the end of the day, you know, who are we trying to impress? We're just trying to be, you know, and I think if we let ourselves be, you know, sometimes <laughs> it's a good lesson to learn if we can. The other interesting thing about the word belong because you, you have been professionally a very sophisticated investor and actually developed in your company a way to manage assets there in a sophisticated manner. And if you look at the word belong, it says belong. 
and <laughs> not be short, be long, right? right. Uh, and so I, I wonder what could that reveal to us about the idea of belonging, because in that space of life, you can either be short or you can be long, and part of how you choose when you go long and when you go short determines ultimately where you are and what belongs to you and what are you part of. So I wonder if your mind would do anything with that. Yeah, it's it's a I had never thought of that before, but it's an interesting it's an interesting way to think about it. I mean, I guess when we're short with ourselves, we miss out a lot, don't we? And we we often are short with ourselves. You know, we're afraid to put ourselves out there. We're afraid to let sometimes we're afraid to let the inner part of us show. I know in this eclectic society that we have this discussion group I reference further, quite frequently people will be describing their views on a subject and begin to weep because the subject is meaningful to them. And yet, you know, how many times do adults allow themselves to, you know, to weep in front of another adult? I mean, it's something like it's a horror of horrors, right? Even at a funeral, you know, when we're given a, you know, what are they, a eulogy for a parent, you know, what do we do? We bite our tongue and we clench our fists and we dig our fingernails into our wrists because we try to get through the eulogy without weeping. Well, the strangest thing to do would be to do that, not weep, right? But we cut ourselves short. So maybe you have something there. Huh? <laughs> I think that's interesting. You have a blog post where you talk about the insight of the nine words and you relate to Churchill's quote, which, by the way, is ascribed to some other people as well. But Churchill definitely said that if I had more time to prepare, I would have made a shorter speech, indicating the power of brevity. And you say that you took this to heart, and because you've been in a position to often coach and mentor people working for you and in a broader way in, in the organization, you synthesize your advice to nine words which are chunked in three parts. And the nine words are be the best, look both ways, and help others succeed. So I'm going to run these three parts by you and, and ask you to speak to what they, these words mean for you and what is the context with which you offered that advice. So the first is be the best. How do you mean be the best? Well, I think, you know, both personally and corporately, we tend to get internally focused. And so, and when we're internally focused, we can lose track of the customer. We can lose track of a market. We can lose track of our situation. And so what to me be the best means is you need to kind of get your head out of the sand, you know, look up, look around and say, I'm involved in this activity. How do others think about this activity? How do others go about executing this activity? And is there anything I can learn from them in the process? Because the only way to be the best, let's say if we're running a 10K, I don't know if I'm the best unless I race you, you know, and, and I don't know if I'm the best unless I race 5,000 other people. And so, you know, being the best implies knowledge that goes beyond self or beyond your insular community that we call a corporation. So that's kind of what I meant by be the best. It's not literally, you know, very few of us can be the best at anything, but what we can do is look around and learn from others who are engaged in similar activities. So that's the essence of that one. 
expose yourself to the mastery of others. And if you want to excel in something, find somebody who exhibit that mastery and then discover how you can do it in your own way because you won't be able to do it exactly in their way. You're going to have to find the way you are able to excel in that activity. The thing about that, Aviv, I'm sorry, I cut you off on there. But the interesting thing about that, I one time worked for a boss. Most of my boss bosses were wonderful people that I learned so much from. But from time to time, one has a boss, you know, that does not fit that description, right? And there was a particular point in time where I had this boss that, I mean, I so disenjoyed working for this person that I was, you know, interviewing and seriously considering leaving the company. And one day, my wife, who, you know, was very wise about these kind of things said, why in the world would you do that? She goes, this is the best learning opportunity you could possibly have. I mean, you've been spoiled in the past by working for all these wonderful people. Now you have the opportunity to observe how it is that someone pisses people off. So she goes, make it a learning lab. And so I did. And I started watching everything that this person did with me and what this person did to others and categorizing them and boiling them down. And for the rest of my career, I tried to make sure that when I was doing things, I wasn't doing any of the top three things that uh, this person had been doing to me. And so it was quite valuable. So I can't remember what that that was an answer to, but that was... uh, Well, we're talking now about be the best. And what you just alluded to is you learn by great example and you learn by horrible example and and you take lessons from both. The second part is look both ways. What's the genesis of this message and how do you mean that? Yeah, well, at a very young age, and I mean this as a descriptor versus anything that might be interpreted as being immodest, but I was promoted to senior levels, quite frankly, before I was ready. And so very, very early and when I was very, very young, my job became not doing things, but trying to orchestrate action between functions. So it wasn't about being a good purchaser or a good planner, good whatever it might be. It was about getting department A to work with department B, which is absurd on the surface because if you're all working for the same company, why in the world would you work at competing interests? But, you know, I'm sure much of your practice (laughs) involves trying to get functions to work together as well. And so what I noticed is that when functions were working together poorly, generally it was because someone ran out into the street and didn't look both ways to see if a car was coming. And the car would, you know, knock them over and then they would be mad or hurt or whatever it might be. And I just remember my mother, we lived on a street where, you know, we kicked the soccer ball and every once in a while the soccer ball would roll out into the street. And, you know, when we were young, we dashed out in the street for the ball without looking both ways. And boy, did that produce a tongue lashing from my mother. And we learned that you stopped at the edge of the street, you looked both ways, and then you ran and got the ball. And so as I worked cross-functionally with teams, I would always ask them, how is this action going to impact those downstream from you? And how will this action be interpreted from those upstream from you? And How can we work with one another to make sure that the actions we're taking that have mutual impacts on one another, how can we make sure they're harmonious? And it's shocking how many times that created 
strange looks <laughs> by people or epiphanies and others. So look both ways. And you are messaging there in look both ways, the practice of awareness, the practice of being present, and the, the practice of uh, contemplating and thinking through the consequences of your actions. And valuing others. An example of that, I felt at one point in my career that we could make a lot of money, in fact, uh, many tens of millions of dollars, if we could get involved in the development process with respect to the specifications of the items we are purchasing. And so I boldly went up to the CEO and said, if you give me X million dollars to hire Y people, I promise you within three years, I will give you this stream of income. And the CEO, I had a pretty good track record and the CEO said, done. And so I walked out of there and I hired um, 12 PhD scientists to work on a team to optimize the items we were buying. And I hired another PhD scientist to run this group that worked for me. And it failed miserably. And the reason it failed was that we were on our own agenda and we ran out into the street. And what we didn't realize is the street we ran out into was owned by other people. And when they saw us run into their street, they said, well, I'll fix this. And they put up stop sign. And despite all the talent I had on my team, they kept running into those stop signs. So I recognized this after about a year and thought, you know, I've got this expense that I've spent. And if I don't figure a way out of this, you know, my credibility will be, you know, dramatically harmed. And so I found another leader of the team. And this leader said, well, Tim, you're approaching this all wrong. What we need to do is go out to the people who own that street and say, how can we help you achieve your goals? And that's what he did. He, he went and interviewed all these senior executives that own the street, asked them what he could do with this new team of 12 PhDs to make them more successful. They had buku ideas on how to do that. And lo and behold, some of those ideas were the exact ones that we wanted to do anyway. And so we did, we implemented those ideas. The owners of the street thought we were brilliant. We way over-delivered the goal, even though starting out from a deficit because of the first miss. And the lesson I took from that was, hey, look both ways. And that also defines the final three words to help others succeed. So be the best, look both ways, help others succeed. What else would you say to, to those? Well, I think on, on the have others succeed, it's very easy to be focused on yourself. But, you know, towards, you know, later parts of my career, when I was hiring people, I was hiring vice presidents. And when you hire something, you know, when you hire someone who themselves is going to run a large organization, you're looking for a multiplier effect. I don't care what their IQ is. I don't care what their accomplishments are. I don't care how smart they might be. I want to hire someone who makes 20 other people brilliant. And so, you know, help others succeed is exactly that. You know, we run into people at times, even at very, very senior levels, even at the CEO level, where it's all about them. And the organization quickly sees that and they kowtow in everything they do to make sure that that person's ego is, you know, puffed up. And there's other people who 
place their focus on a multiplicative effect of empowering others. And so the help others succeed is simply a short way of saying, be focused on empowerment. Because if you can empower all the members of your team to be as good or better than yourself, just think what might happen. So it was funny you you asked that question. I wasn't expecting that, but I was just speaking with a young person um, a couple of weeks ago, and he asked me, what's the secret to a successful career? <laughs> I gave him the nine words and tried to explain them, and he was writing them down. So I hope they helped him. <laughs> In your blog post, Spirit Already Knows, you write about listening deeply, which we have spoken about here, and about the peace that precedes challenge. What is that piece and what is the how do you place the significance and the nature of what peace is you know i immediately thought of an example and let me know if this example um answers what you're asking aviv but one of the jobs i had before i retired was i was more or less the ombudsman between two warring functions and these two warring functions were very powerful and very large and both functions looked to me to be the diplomat, the person who brought, who was really, my main job was to bring these functions together. But the functions in reality had no intent of ever coming together. So um, so I was in this no-win position. And for one of the meetings, it was my job to present some results that these teams were working on. And I delegated this task to an individual on my team and sad to say the task was not completed. And so a half an hour before the meeting, I learned that this task was not completed. There was no way it was going to be completed. The whole purpose of the joint meeting was to review the progress against this task. And I had nothing to review. And so I went into my office and shut my door. And this will sound insane and just went into mindfulness. I just meditated for 20 minutes. And I didn't make any attempt to solve the problem. I didn't make any attempt to cover. I just shut the door and, you know, went into the, um, you know, and, and I walked into the meeting. And what people later told me, and, you know, there's no way of knowing this yourself, is that I walked in with such peace and such confidence that the warring teams just kind of put down their swords. And in the meeting, I had nothing to present. And they never discovered that because suddenly they just began to brainstorm and to work. And it was one of the most successful meetings we ever had. And I think where that comes back to spirit is that, you know, when it's not about us, when we just let the air out of the balloon that we call me and just come in and be about others and be about the challenge that we're both facing. Sometimes there's a power there that's hard to explain other than by spirit. And I don't mean that spirit necessarily in a religious context, though some people may interpret it that way, but there's a power in between us as we've talked before here. And I think what I must have done in that meeting somehow is energized in betweenness in the group. You have trans- transmogrified the entitized battlefield into a space of discovery, a joint discovery. 
Tim, as you know, I've, I've made a career, a very successful career, actually doing that and enabling people to come together to a shared space of discovery. And sometimes the fancy words we use around to cover for things, they are simply inroads to enter the space of joint discovery, where breakthrough ideas and innovation and collaboration is ultimately, as you are describing, these are expressions that will manifest when we allow ourselves to be changed by the collective we and the joint mission of what, we are t- what it is we're trying to accomplish. Right, right. I think that's right. That's, uh, so there's an intersection there between what you're doing and what we're talking about here, which shouldn't be surprising, I suppose. <laughs> totally. Let me ask you about where do you place in your map of meaning two naturally arising vectors of development? I'm asking this both in the personal development, personal journey sense, but also in terms of your view of history and the, the, the long wave journey of humanity. Because those two, they may present themselves as a polarity, and, and I'm asking to see how you, you negotiate these, these two ideas. You go through life and you move towards increasing individuation and independence and freedom. And you've also described the we and the sense of journey towards unity and integration. How have you negotiated these two impulses? How do you place them? Because they each present an element, an important element in the unfolding story of life. So as we individualize many times, our agenda um, differs. And so is the question, as we individualize and as our agenda, as our agenda you know, inherently differs, how do we bring that together until something that's advantageous for both of us? Is that what you're asking? Or? Yes, and more. I'm proposing that there is an important phase in a development journey where as you discovered when you were six, you said, I am me. <laughs> and right there, there was a, a journey. You embarked on, a, an, on an individuating, individuated journey, the discovery of self as something that has a role, a, a function in the cosmology of life. And for many people, this is something they will discover more into their teen years or, or into their 20s and 30s in different ways because they will for the first time, be faced with, an, with needing to take full responsibility for their choices. That is the individuated, individuating journey. So you've got to go through that part. But so much of what you're describing is you go through the discovery of self only to then discover that there is a greater something else, that life is actually not about self, but life is about the joining with life. So I am trying to describe and intuit how you may be placing these two. They can either be seen as an arc, a development arc, or a double helix of two propulsions that that express themselves through life. The individuation propulsion and the unification, integration propulsion. So let me try and answer... um a short philosophical answer and then a practical answer. My brother is a is a minister, person of the cloth, 
And uh, he's one of these guys that was in school until he was 30. I don't know how many master's degrees he has and doctors of divinity and all this stuff. And he was with a very knowledgeable, very, very respected professor. And this professor, they were in his library, you know, it's very tall ceilings and, you know, 18 foot ceilings and those books, floor to ceilings in every direction. And they chatted in his library late into the evening, in fact, so late into the evening that it was becoming the next morning about matters of, of religion and philosophy. And so seeing that his professor was becoming tired, my brother asked, he said, professor, you know, you're, you know, you've been at this your entire life. How would you sum up what you've learned in this, in religion and in life in as few words as possible? And without missing a beat, this professor said, to hold hands with God and your fellow man. And if you let go, find a way to hold hands again. And I've thought about that many times when it comes to business, because we try to hold hands sometimes, but we let go. And then what we don't do is try to hold hands again. So the practical answer is that whenever I started a negotiation, an important negotiation, and generally that happened at levels below me, but once in a while when they were large enough, you know, I was involved as well. And what I would do is that forget the terms of the agreement, forget the contract, you know, we'll let other people do that. What I'm interested in is what is important to you? And just on a piece of paper, we don't need a typewriter, we don't need a computer, we don't need an attorney. Just write down on this piece of paper what's really important to you in this deal. And I'm going to do the same. And let's take about three minutes to do that because if it takes longer than three minutes, we're writing something other down than what's most important to us. So let's just write those down. And there'd be some variation on the vendor side of needing to make money. And there'd be some variation on my side of needing to save money. And we take those two pieces of paper and we just put them together and say, now, we are no longer on two different teams. We're on the same team. And our goal is, and I physically draw a circle around both pages and say, our goal is to brainstorm how all six of these points or how all four of these points, however many there were, can be achieved. And it was amazing how many times, not every time, but it was amazing how many times that when we jointly worked on the same problem, which just a moment previous had been separate problems, that the problem was solved. And so, you know, I think the professor's answer to my brother's question and the practical answer from a business perspective ended up being the same answer. And so does that answer the question? Well, it does, and, and, and it answers more. The, the significance in, in this professor answer is, and then... If we let go, hold hands together. What what is the the meaning for you of that capacity to come back together after we got separated? How do you internalize that? Well, to me, it's indicative of positive intent because we're going to let go. I mean, in human relations, we're always going to let go. That's the easy part. The hard part is to hold hands again, and that has to be intentional. If you take our current political situation, which fascinates me greatly, I'm spending an enormous amount of time now reading and thinking about the increasing divisiveness in our country. 
And it's not a new thing. I mean, we did have a civil war 150 years ago or 170 years ago, but but it's a dangerous thing. And, and I do a lot of thinking about it. And and eventually I may do some writing about it when I think that I have something worthy of sharing. But but I think the whole issue boiled down to lowest common denominator is the two sides have let go. They don't they aren't holding hands, and neither side have any intent whatsoever of holding hands again. And it doesn't matter what one's political ideology is. It doesn't matter who's right, who's wrong, who's lying, who's contorting the facts. What matters is that both sides feel that their agenda is more important than the country. And as long as that continues to be true, we'll continue to move down this path that that in previous times for this country and others has led to conflict. And so I think this is not an academic question. I think it's a, a practical question for us here. Two final questions. What is the meaning of grace for you? Hmm. Well, I love Niebuhr's, was it, um, I can't remember his first name, quote, the theologian that said, you know, grace is all about changing the things you can, realizing the things you can't change and, you know, and accepting the things you can't and knowing the difference. I, you know, I butchered the quote, but it's hard to be graceful when you're young I think it's a little easier when you're older. You know, it's it's somewhat easy for me to sit back and watch my daughter with her new daughter and to sit back and watch rather than saying, well, you know, when I was raising you, this is the way I did it and this is right and this is wrong. And, you know, I sit back and watch. And if she asks me, well, do you have any ideas on this situation? You know, I, I might be more likely to ask her a question back than to offer an answer, you know? And so I think part of the, part of grace, and I'm wandering here, but I think part of grace is seeing the other first and placing the other in front of yourself and allowing, you know, things to be, allowing you to be you and allowing nature to be nature and realizing that's not always going to play to my advantage. That's okay. Because you know, life isn't about me, I'm about life. My final question is, what are you still working on in yourself? You know, it's one thing to philosophize about all these things, and it's another thing to live these things. And it's one thing to sit on your, where they call it the sasen or your cushion, you know, in, in deep meditation and, and, and experience, enlightenment and, and all the, you know, stuff there, you know, the I, we, one. And it's another thing to get up off the cushion and to go to the store and to interact with friends and to engage with people who disagree with you in a way that's respectful, that's inclusive, that recognizes the uh, one that you felt on the cushion, but, you know, practicalizes in the way you live your life. And so, you know, what I work on all the time and forever I'm coming up short, but that gives me more work to do is trying to put these things we've been talking about for the last, you know, period of time into practice and recognizing as quick as possible when I'm not um, putting them into practice. You know, Marcus Aurelius, I guess was a practice way back in those times. It was called the God test. And the God test was whenever 
one of the individuals, I guess they must have been Romans back in those times, recognized that they were at this ease and that things weren't going their way. In fact, things might be going very badly. The challenge was to, as quickly as possible, recognize it was a test from the gods and to respond to accordingly. And I think that that's our challenge, isn't it? To recognize that when we are experiencing this hyphen ease and to bring us back to peace, because when we do that, chances are others around us will move from dis-ease to peace as well. Thank you very much, Tim, for this contemplative exploration with you today. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity, Aviv. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.